Well, let us open God's Word together this morning. We're going to be in many different texts of Scripture. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe this is your second or third visit, normally we do work through texts of the Bible consecutively. We've been looking at the book of Ephesians, and uh, we just finished off with Ephesians 2, 11 through 12 last week. And the goal there is to open up one individual text, explain it, apply it, uh, show you where it's linked up with the theology of Scripture. But today I I wanted to just focus on the birth of Christ and specifically what the Old Testament has to say about the birth of Christ, the coming Messiah. We're just saying, I think the the song, that last one, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is really a great song to encapsulate the theology of the Old Testament as concerns the birth of Christ. You saw over and over the the mention of Israel, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and, and ransom captive Israel. And then exiles. And then just over and over, this expectation, this idea that they needed to be ransomed, they needed to be saved, they needed a king, they needed a ruler. And then at the end, all the nations coming in under that same ruler as well, that same savior. It is the time of year when many people are talking and thinking about Christmas. Celebration of Christmas is, is not a command in scripture. It's, it's not a holy day like the Roman Catholics teach. But it is a great time of year to consider the birth of Christ, if not for the reason that everybody else is, even unbelievers, even the world, even people sometimes of other faiths will tend to get involved into something like Christmas around this time of year. What a great opportunity to look at text in the Old Testament to consider what it has to say about the coming Messiah. Also last week in in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, we, we looked at what it meant for Gentiles to be apart from Christ. What did it mean for our forefathers, our ancestors as Gentiles, and and even in a sense, each of us before we were saved, to be without these covenants that Israel was given? Without, Paul says, Christ alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Well, what does the Bible have to say about that? What did Old Testament saints, what were they looking for? What were they thinking about? when it came to the Messiah's coming? What scriptures pointed them to that so that they could rejoice like we see them do in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke when the New Testament starts out? We want to look today at messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Now there are literally hundreds of passages in the Old Testament specifically pointing to Christ. And I'm not even saying today that we're going to attempt to cover those. There's 210 that look just to the coming Messiah specifically. There are hundreds of allusions outside of that. And there are some debatable passages where there's hints of a coming Savior. And scholars debate back and forth how much is revealed about Jesus there. I just want to take a handful of references, some of which you might be familiar with, many of which are going to be cited in the New Testament, and consider those with you. And look at as, as a Jew under just the first five books of the Bible, what would they see there about Christ? And then the historical books and, and the writings or the, the, the prophets, what would they see there about Christ? I hope this will get us in the mindset and the context of, of what people were thinking when the Gospel of Matthew starts or when the Gospel of Luke or even the Gospel of John starts. What, what were people thinking? What were they hoping for? What was their great hope? And it was for a coming ruler, Messiah, king, savior, priest, prophet, all of those things in the Old Testament. 
Today I've got just three main points that we're going to group these under. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write these down. If you want to keep up and go through the passages, I recommend that. But if you can't, uh, make notes and look at these later. It's called selective scriptures in your bulletin, which means we're looking at a lot of scriptures and not just one text. It is, in a sense, I guess, a topical survey of the Old Testament when it comes to Jesus Christ. And the first thing I want you to see, especially in those first five books of the Bible, is the final sacrifice. The final sacrifice. The Messiah would be that needed final sacrifice. He's the one that we would all need from Adam forward to take away our sins, to make us right with God. It's the theme, I think, of, of the first five books when it comes to the topic of Messiah. The first five books in, in Hebrew was called the Torah. In, in Greek, it was the Pentateuch, meaning five. And then we just often refer to it as one of those titles. But it's the books that Moses wrote for the people of Israel. And what do we see there about Messiah? What do we see there about Christ? Well, let's begin at the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 The very beginning, Adam and Eve have sinned. They have fallen. They have turned away from God. They have disobeyed. Eve has eaten from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Her husband has followed her. God comes to him and asks, why did you do this? What has happened? And like all sinners and many husbands, we blame our wife. And then he ultimately blamed God because this is the woman that you gave me, God. It's really your fault. You set all this up. And of course, God begins to tell them what's going to happen as a result of that in Genesis 3. And he speaks also to Satan here, specifically in 3.15. And God says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent, that's Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So there's going to be this big battle between God's seed and the devil's seed. And we might think that's just general humanity, and in a way it is. But God gets more specific. He shall bruise you on the head. He's just, God's just been talking about seed, and now he says he. What's the switch between seed and he? Well, we can look back now and know that's the Christ. That's the Messiah. But even even the original readers, as they heard Moses teach these things, and they would have had access at some point to the Old Testament scriptures, They would have asked, who who is this he? He shall bruise you, that's Satan. Some seed of the woman is going to bruise Satan on the head. That's a deathly blow. To be bruised on the head is a deathly blow. And you, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. That's not a deathly blow. That's, That's painful. But we know that when it comes down to it, Christ was raised again on the third day. And so we we see the hint of the gospel. Often this is called the the proto-evangel, before the gospel, the original mention of the gospel, little hints of the gospel right here after they sinned. Look how gracious God is already. He's already promising to correct this problem. It's all in his plan. He knew it was all going to happen. All things are decreed by God. And he comes mercifully and he's speaking to Satan. But of course, Adam and Eve are listening and we get it recorded in scripture that there's going to be a, a head crusher, a snake crusher, Jesus Christ. And he's going to come and he's going to deal a death blow to this evil serpent. Well, let's get forward to Genesis 12, 3. So it's going to be of the seed of Eve. There's going to be a, a man who comes into the world. Some say even 
Eve thinks her firstborn son is, is that Savior. But we come to Genesis 12, 3, and in Adam and Eve, of course, parents of all mankind. And here in Genesis 12, God begins to narrow down just to the family of Abraham, the descendants of which will become Israel, and these are his chosen people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. But he makes a covenant here with Abram, which will become Abraham. Genesis 12. Let's just start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to which, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. In other words, if Abraham does what God says, he's showing faith. Abraham was a pagan. Abraham was a Gentile. And he's going to obey. He's going to follow. He's going to trust in this God speaking to him. And here's what God will do. I will make you a great nation. That's going to be the nation of Israel. I will bless you and make your name great. Of course, right now today, we're reading about Abram, Abraham. His name is great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And here it is. And you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. Everyone. Not, not just Israel. Of course, his descendants will be blessed. And they'll have a great nation, a great name. But all the families of the earth, even those outside of Abraham and his descendants will be blessed. Again, just just little hints of the gospel. It's easy for us to look back and see that, but I think a studious Jew, one one reading the scriptures, really praying about it, listening, would would have looked for these things. Who is this seed that will crush the serpent's head? Who is this one? Or how is this going to come about that God would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham? Well, if you skip forward to Genesis 22, we'll get more details on this. Genesis 22, 18. And this, this phrase, seed, this word seed comes up again. This is right after um, Abraham takes his son Isaac up on top of the mountain. God is testing him. God wants to see if he will obey. And so, so he takes his son up on the mountain. And, and Abraham's willing to obey, but he even knows. He knows they're coming back. And he tells his servant, wait here. We will return. Even if he follows through with it, he knows that God can bring people back to life. God can resurrect the dead. So he goes up and and then at the moment he's going to use the knife, what happens? A ram suddenly caught in the thicket, a, a sacrifice takes the place of his one and only son. And so God says in 22.18, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's not just Israel, but all the nations. Us as Gentiles today are blessed because of God's plan, which showed itself in, in Abraham obeying and taking his one and only son. Hence again about the one and only son being a sacrifice in your seed. Picking up that language that God spoke to the serpent. Well, this, of course, is what they would have heard. It's what they would have studied. And then we come to Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. And you recall they had spent hundreds of years in bondage, in slavery in Egypt. Even though God had promised these things to Israel, they end up in Egypt. They're in slavery. Things started off well when Joseph was there. And then a few generations later, they're making bricks without straw. They're dying. They're being whipped. They're being killed. Moses is raised up by God and tells them what to do, how to, how to prepare to leave because God's about to do a great thing. The plagues are happening. And then the last plague, you remember what it is? The last plague? Death of the firstborn. Firstborn of Egypt, men, women. Firstborn of Israel too, 
Firstborn of all animals. But here's what God says in, in Exodus 12, 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Not just saying Egyptians. I'll strike down everything that was born first in every family and every animal, the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. So God's going to show his glory. He's going to show his power through this. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. He's going to make his name known. And he says, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. That little lamb, that little lamb you've been keeping in your home, you're to take it and you're to sacrifice it essentially. You're to cut it up. You're to prepare a meal out of it, but more importantly, you're to take the blood from that lamb and put it on your doorpost. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover. That's why they're supposed to celebrate it every year, Passover. God passed over the houses that had blood on their doorposts. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. What's God saying here? He's saying they're sinners just like Egypt. They're not perfect. Yes, they're God's people. But we all deserve death for our sin. And he's saying, you do this, which sounds very much like a sacrifice that'll come up later in Leviticus. You do this with the blood and that will show me that you're trusting me, you're having faith in me, and I will pass over. Because of blood, because of life given, God's going to pass over. He's not going to kill the firstborn of all the Israelite families. This pointed to them the fact that a life had to be given for a life. They would have understood that. They would have known. They would have said, who are we to receive such grace, to receive such mercy? And so they did it. They did as God expected. They, they weren't getting off scot-free. They had to sacrifice this animal. They had to kill it. They had to do the work. They had to obey God. But it taught them. It taught them that blood needed to be shed for them to live. We have to think about that as well, don't we? We're sinners. We can't just say, well, I'm a Christian now, but we were once sinners and blood had to be shed for us. Paul even says in the New Testament that Christ is our Passover lamb. Wasn't that we were so great? You know, God just chose us and saved us because we were the best people he could find. Just look at us. I mean, some of you, some of you are very intelligent and wise. But most of us were saved out of nothing. I mean, we were saved out of our sins. We were saved out of a life that would have maybe ended in death prematurely, maybe ended in prison, maybe, maybe a life that would have just been wasted on things. And yet Christ, our Passover lamb, died for us. God saved us through that. So the people of Israel, they were beginning to see a pattern. They were beginning to see that something had to be done for their sin. Something had to be sacrificed. And, and there's this covenant with Abraham that all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's this snake crusher coming. And then little hints along the way of a ruler and, and of a king. Numbers twenty four seventeen. Numbers twenty four seventeen. we have a prophecy. A prophecy is given and the prophecy is like this. A star shall come forth from Jacob. That means a ruler. This is not the star that was over Bethlehem that the wise men followed. That's not what he's getting at here. The star is a ruler that will arise out of the tribe or the, or the nation, Israel. Another name for Jacob. 
A scepter shall rise. That's, that's kingship language. Not just a ruler, but a very strong ruler. A scepter is what all the rulers of ancient times would carry. It showed their authority, their power. And all their enemies would bow before the scepter when they were conquered. And look at this language. And shall crush. Again, this idea of crushing. Not Here it's not the serpent, but it's families. It's nations that are attacking Israel. Moab. And tear down all the sons of Sheth. All the enemies of God. All those who are bound up with the desire to defeat God and defeat his people. There, there's, there's a star coming. There's a scepter. There's a ruler coming that will take care of that once and for all. He will conquer God's enemies. So a hint there. I think the main point is a sacrifice. But there's little hints of a king. And another little hint of a prophet. A final prophet. Deuteronomy. The last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Moses is speaking to the generation about to go into the promised land. He's about to die. Who will speak for God when Moses dies? Well, there will be prophets along the way. God will raise up men like Samuel. He'll raise up many prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. But Moses says this in 18, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Not just many, but just one. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you ask of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly. At Mount Sinai, Horeb, they were fearful. They were, they were scared of God and the lightning and the thunder. And they were fearful that they would die if they saw God, which is right. They would. And so they begged. They said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. God agrees with that. God agrees with that idea. He didn't say, you know what, it's no big deal. Come on up to the mountain. I love to see all you guys. Come on up. Let's have a party. Let's do whatever. Do whatever you want. That's not what God said. He said, you'll die if you see me to Moses. And he said, the people are right to fear me. We should have a healthy reverence and fear for the Lord. Even as his people, we should have a fear for the Lord. And God says, they've spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth. So there's going to be one prophet. He will have words in his mouth to speak from God, just like Moses. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. If they don't listen to this prophet, God's going to require it. What's it? Their life. Remember, they feared their life. They didn't want to go up to the mountain and see God. God says they've spoken well. But when I send that prophet, they, they should listen. They better listen because if they don't, God's going to require their life. Again, just a, a hint of someone coming in the future that's going to be greater than Moses. Jesus, greater than Moses. And if you don't listen to Christ, then God will require your life and it will be eternal punishment. But again, the main message, I think, in the first five books is this idea of a needed sacrifice. One more passage I'll just allude to. Leviticus 16 and 17. Once a year the high priest would go and he would make a sacrifice for all the nation of Israel. It was called the Day of Atonement. The day that the sins would be covered. As they waited and waited for the coming Messiah, their sins had to be covered. They had to be made clean. How can you live with the Holy God in your presence unless God is continually cleansing you. Otherwise, the sin would just build up and build up, and you would 
have a God amongst a very unholy people. Even the priests themselves needed to be cleansed, needed to be covered. So once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would throw some blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the seat, got the mercy seat where God would meet with the high priest. And go to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. This is pointing to the need for an atonement, for a sacrifice. I think this sums up the first point here very well. 1711. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I had given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. You want to be right with God? You want to be forgiven? You want to have your sins wiped away? You want to be cleansed? There needs to be an atonement. And in those days, it meant you, as the head of your household men, would go up. And you might take your older sons with you, and you would have to sacrifice this lamb on behalf of your family so that God would cleanse you, that God would wipe away your sins until one day the final sacrifice would come and he would take your sins as far as the east is from the west. But there's life for life. And the only way to to be at one with God, to be right before God, is a blood sacrifice. And since animals won't do it, you have to do it every year, every year, every year. They're looking for some way, someone that will be once for all. And that's Christ. If you read the book of Hebrews, over and over, they're pointing back to the sacrificial system the writer is and saying, he is our once for all sacrifice. We don't need to to do the mass every week and bring Christ down and sacrifice him on the altar because he's died once for all. And he's died one time for all those who believe in him. That's it. You don't have to sacrifice animals. When's the last time any of you did that? My son shot a deer yesterday and I saw the blood and the guts and stuff, but that was for food. We don't have to sacrifice. We don't have to do that. Thank the Lord we don't have to do that. And that's not just the work entailed, of course, but the fact that it meant you're not fully cleansed, you're not fully right, because every year you have to have this done. Well, payment for sinners, pointing to Christ in the Old Testament. And, and it's, not, it's not just sin in general. Christ, Christ didn't die as a Passover. He didn't die as an atonement for just sin in general. Like sin's out there somewhere and Christ came and took it away. It's still in the world, isn't it? So what did he do? He died for sinners. That's what it means. He substituted himself in in the place of us. If you're in Christ today, that's what it means. He was a substitute. He didn't take sin even out of your life as a believer, did he? Because you still sin sometimes. No, he died for sinners. He made a specific sacrifice that accounted for all those who would believe in him. And when we believe in him, it gets applied to us and we are saved forever and ever and ever. And we get his righteousness. It's better than the Day of Atonement. It's better than the Passover. We get his righteousness. Not only are our sins taken away, we get his righteousness. He is the perfect sacrifice. Have you come to Christ as your perfect sacrifice? Before we even go into points two and three, is this pointing to the Christ that you believe in? Not the Christ of the world. Not the sort of fake statues and even babies in the manger that you see around, but the real Christ of Scripture. Is that your Lord? Is that your Christ? Would you have rejoiced in that day to see Jesus come into the world? Jesus, the Son of God. Think about that as we look at two-thirds of your Bible here pointing to Christ. Well, we're not going to go book by book. You don't have to worry about that because we'd be here until the Lord returns 
if we looked at every passage. But let's move on to the next section of Scripture. And, and I want to point out that the main theme there is the eternal king. Number two, the eternal king. Starting in the book of Joshua, we're looking at the historical books. And in our English Bibles, also the, the wisdom and poetry books. We have this eternal king, not, not just the sacrifice, which is wonderful, but he's also going to be a ruler, a king that's emphasized greatly in First and Second Samuel, especially also in the Psalms, the Messiah. Now they're going to learn that he's a king and that he is an anointed king. That's what Messiah means. It comes from the Hebrew Meshiach, Meshiach, which means smeared or anointed because a, a great king that God had appointed would be smeared with oil. You see that with Saul. You see that with David, especially. The high priest would be smeared with oil. The priest would be anointed for service before the Lord. This is the anointed one, though. The Messiah that we begin to focus in on in these books of the Bible. Messiah came to be known eventually in Greek as Christ, Christos. It means the same thing. The anointed one, the smeared one with oil. And so in the Old Testament, it's Messiah. New Testament, it's Christ. Some, some even translate in the New Testament, Messiah. But they needed a ruler. They needed an anointed one of God who would be God's ruler upon the earth. Adam failed. Saul certainly failed. We're going to find out David fails in many ways. All through these books, these historical books in the Old Testament, it's just one failure after the other. Even the best, David, is a sinner. Hezekiah, sinner. Josiah, some of the best kings in Israel. Sinners. They're not perfect. You need a perfect king, a perfect ruler. One that's fully man of the line of David to rule upon the throne. So Joshua, really through Esther, looks towards an eternal king who will, who will not fail, who will not sin. There was a problem in Judges. Judges, people did what they wanted, didn't they? What's the theme of Judges? We looked at it in our class on Sunday morning a few weeks ago. It comes up four or five times in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People without a ruler just do whatever they want. They sin as much as they want. They don't think there's any consequence. And so in 1 Samuel, we began to see the people calling out for a king. And they didn't select based on God's judgment, though. They chose their own king. They chose who they wanted. They chose based on appearance, on strength on abilities. But by the end of 1 Samuel, you see that, that God raised up David, a true king after God's own heart. David's not perfect, but he's, he wants to please God. He wants to follow God. He is following God. He's born again. And we get to this great passage in 2 Samuel 7. I referenced it last week, but 2 Samuel seven twelve. David has brought up the Ark of the Covenant. He's brought it into Jerusalem, this great city that God wants to make the, the capital of Israel. So he's brought it up the mountain. He finally gets it there after some issues along the way, and he's going to build a temple. He's going to build a temple, and, and God says, no, wait, it's going to be your son who builds a temple. But because of that desire, because of that love for the Lord, to make sure that the Lord had a great house where the temple and the ark could be. And we could, if we were in Israel those days, we could go up and worship the Lord there, just like they did in the tabernacle in the wilderness. 2 Samuel 7, 12, after the ark's been brought up, by the time you get to this little passage in verse 16, your house 
and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. This is called the Davidic covenant. God is saying, your line is not going to die out, and there's going to be a king someday that will live forever. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I know some people look at that and they say, well, that's Solomon, and Solomon is dead. And all the kings of Israel got taken away eventually into Babylon. But he says forever. Yeah, well, Christ came, but now he's in heaven. Yeah, he says forever, though. Christ is coming back, and he will rule forever to accomplish this covenant, to accomplish this promise. It's called the Davidic covenant. It's the high point, really, of these historical books. It's the pinnacle. It's what Joshua and Judges and and even Ruth was pointing to here. And 1 Samuel's pointing to that God would have a ruler, his own king upon the throne forever and ever. And we know that Christ comes from the line of David. We know that Matthew points back to a lot of these passages in Luke as well to prove that Christ is the promised Messiah. And we turn to the, to the writings, to wisdom and poetry. And just the book of Job, the oldest book in the Bible. Did you know that? Job's the oldest book in the Bible. Probably written around the time of Abraham, maybe a little before Abraham. Job 19. Turn to Job 19.25. Oldest book in the Bible. Job's probably not of the nation Israel. If he's living around the time of Abraham, he's not going to be. He's a Gentile. He knows the true God somehow, though. He's lost everything. His friends are there. They're supposedly to comfort him. What do they do? They make fun of him. They mock him. They tell him how evil and how sinful he is. They tell him how all this is his fault that's happened. All his ten children have died. Everything has been taken away. All of his wealth. And so he just argues and debates with his friends. It's a great theological lesson all the way through Job. But here's what he says in chapter 19, verse 25. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, speaking of the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. Who is that figure in the oldest book of the Bible? A Redeemer who lives who will take his stand on the earth. So at some point he's not on the earth, and then at a later point he will stand upon the earth. And listen to Job's faith here. Even after my skin is destroyed, after it's completely been wiped out, rotted away, there's nothing left, yet from my flesh I shall see God. How do you see God if your flesh and skin and everything has been destroyed? And yet he says, from my flesh, from my life, I will be there in my body, to see God. No one saw gods back then. You could not see a God. You can't even see the one true God or you'll die, as we've already said. And yet here's Job saying, I will see God. He's going to stand upon the earth. He's my redeemer, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. I'm going to see this one. My heart faints within me. It's such an amazing thing, Job says all that I've gone through, all that I've suffered. But you know what? Someday, long after I'm dead, I will get to see my God. And I'll be in my flesh. Not not a spirit drifting around on a cloud, playing golf and playing harps. But in the resurrection? You know, people say the Old Testament Jews, it's kind of anti-Semitic, but they'll say they didn't know anything about Christ. You know, though people will read the Old Testament, liberal scholars, nobody knew anything about Jesus, really. I mean, they were just guessing How could they have seen anything? Well, here's Job. He knows quite a bit, doesn't he? He knows more than most Americans who might call themselves Christians. There's a resurrection and it's real and it's physical and I'm going to see my God before my eyes. My heart faints within me. He's worshiping 
better than some of us do at times, worshiping the Lord. So there's Job. We move to Psalms. We could spend all day in the Psalms. I'll just point to Psalm 2. If you want to turn to Psalm 2, this is an evangelistic psalm, the only evangelistic psalm. Old Testament is written to the nation of Israel. We benefit from it as New Testament believers, of course. But Psalm 2 is evangelistic. It's a warning. The psalmist here is, is turning to the nations and warning them. And he, he starts off by just describing how the Gentile nations are in an uproar. They're fighting against God. They're fighting against God's people. They want to break the bonds that God has put on them, throw off God's sovereignty. They think they can do that. And verse 5, Psalm 2, verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger. God's a loving God. He is. But he's also wrathful against sin and sinners. And God's going to be angry at the nations who, who are trying to throw him off, who are trying to attack his people. He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king. There it is, king. He's my king. He's God's king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem. He's going to come. He's going to reign upon the throne of David. The psalmist continues, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The decree, what God says, what will actually happen. When a decree is made, it will happen if it's from God. Here's what's going to happen. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. This is a son of God. And today I've begotten, and I think the word begotten here has the idea of installing him as king. Today I'm installing you as king. And we know the first part of this, you are my son. It's what the father said to the son at his baptism. And he said it at the Mount of Transfiguration to Jesus Christ. This is a psalm specifically pointing to the Messiah. This is a psalm that Jews would have read and said, I cannot wait to meet this king. I cannot wait to see this king rule upon the earth. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, the son can ask of the father, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. He's going to rule over everything. Not just Israel, but everything. The whole earth. A real physical ruling over the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This, this figure is going to come, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem, but it's going to be over the whole earth, and he's going to judge the nations going to wipe those out who are against him. He's going to break them. He's going to shatter them. This is speaking of war, conquest, death. And he goes on, some translations say, kiss the sun or give homage to the sun or worship the sun might be a good translation here. It's evangelistic. Stop what you're doing now, nations, and worship the sun who's coming. My son that I am going to install as king. Psalm 16, 27. Psalm of David. David wrote many psalms. It, it might appear that it's all about David if you just read it. But there's just one little phrase or sentence. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is verse 27. Psalm 16, 27. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Is David holy? Is David holy? Is he perfectly holy? Would he call himself a holy one? And would he say in this psalm that he would not undergo decay? 
How does that work? How, how does a man think he's not going to die and have his body decay? This is quoted in the New Testament. It's quoted in Acts three different times. For Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's the one who will not undergo decay. He's the Holy One that will not undergo decay. Why? Because he was raised again on the third day. Because he was fully resurrected. Because he was brought to life before his flesh ever had a chance to decay. God gave him a perfectly new body. So just one little snippet. Remember, David is, is the king that typifies. The king that gives us an example of what the future king is going to be like. Now, David's not the perfect king, so he can't give a perfect example. But it's in the line of David and in the kingship of David, the Messiah will come. How wonderful is that? That we have a Messiah who will not show decay. A Messiah who will not be in that state of death. Psalm 110. Psalm 110, the whole psalm is about this Messiah figure. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord. That's how it starts. Remember, Jesus quotes this, right? He quotes this. He's trying to throw these men who are challenging him. Why does David write this? The Lord, that's in all caps, Yahweh, the God, personal name of God for Israel. Yahweh says to my Lord. Well, David's king, so who's above David? There's no earthly Lord above David. But then there's Yahweh, and then there's this Lord between Yahweh and David. Who is that? Who is that? The, the Jewish mind, they would have read this, they would, they would have believed it to be true, and they would have said, who, who is this? Sit at my right hand? Who can sit at God's right hand? If you're sitting at God's right hand, you're sitting on God's throne, which makes you God. Well, there's only one. This one that David is calling Adonai, Lord. Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All the enemies of God upon the earth will be a footstool. That means he'll conquer them. He'll make them submit. When Christ comes back, he will make them submit. So already getting some eschatology. You know, eschatology is supposed to be for advanced believers, but here they're getting hints of it in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament. This is a ruler who will come and he will take care of all God's enemies once and for all, and that will be a footstool. They'll be conquered. Language of ancient king conquering. The Lord Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. And the whole psalm goes on to describe this coming king and ruler. But here's the thing. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's got to be God, the Son of God, who can sit at the Father's right hand. And he's going to sit there until the enemies are a footstool for your feet even pointing to the resurrection. There's even hints here of the resurrection. That he's going to be on the earth, he's going to go and sit at the Father's right hand, and then later he's coming back to rule in the midst of God's enemies. Psalm 118. Last, last one. Psalm 118. He's a king. A king is coming. They're hoping for a king. They're expecting a king. Come and, come and ransom us. Come and help us be free. Psalm 118. Verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We often say that last part, right? Every day is the day God has made. Let us rejoice. But specifically here, it's talking about 
the day that the stone which the builders rejected becomes the chief cornerstone. There, there's, there's a part of this building that God is building, his people, and there's a, there's a part of it called the stone, the chief cornerstone. Those who are building the house of Israel, by the time of Jesus, that's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They thought Jesus was nothing. You heard about it in the scripture reading today. They thought Jesus was nothing important. They mocked him. Who is your father? Where are you from? Are you going to kill yourself? That's mocking. They're not being serious. They hate Jesus. They hate Jesus because he's sent from God to preach the truth and it's convicting to them. They've done what they've wanted. They hate him. And he is the stone the builders rejected. They're trying to build God's house their way and they reject Jesus. But it turns out he's the chief cornerstone. Again, this verse is quoted many times in the New Testament from beginning to end of the New Testament. It's the Lord's doing. It's, it's Yahweh's doing. This was his plan all along. Do we realize the importance of an eternal king? Maybe, maybe you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Most of us are. But we're saved and he's our king and he's coming back to rule. Again, this is not just about now. It's not just if, if the Lord doesn't return. If, it's not just about that time we spend with our soul in heaven. But it's about his reign upon the earth. Yeah, he's king in your heart. But the scriptures talk about a king ruling upon the earth forever and ever and ever. First a thousand years and then eternally. He's our king. He's our king. Lastly, number three, God with us. He's not only our final sacrifice. He's not only the eternal king, but he's God with us. It would be enough if he was our sacrifice, wouldn't it? Taking our sins away forever and ever. Now we get this blessing of a king. And not only that, God's going to be with us. He's going to dwell among us. He's going to dwell in us. I think that would have been a surprise. I mean, it was true in the Old Testament. It was there. They had to believe it. But how hard would it have been for them? How will God dwell with us? He did once, but he's left us by the time of the prophets. He's left. Our nation is falling apart. We have these barbarians coming in and sacking the city and destroying the temple. How will God ever be with us or in us? God with us, Emmanuel. That's what it means in Hebrew. Emmanuel means God with us. In Hebrew, it starts with an I, an I sound. And then in Greek, it starts with an E. That's why we sing it with Emmanuel, E. That gets from Greek to Latin, E, and then into English. But if you just transliterate it from the Old Testament, it starts with an I. So either one is acceptable. They're both scriptural. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. It literally translates to that. Well, we find the term mentioned three times in Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7, 13. Emmanuel, God with us. Now you should recognize this. It comes up in the New Testament. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This evil king of Israel doesn't want to obey God. And Isaiah says, okay, fine. If you're not going to ask for a sign, God's going to give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. And she will call his name Emmanuel. Now that's miraculous. Some say, well, it's not really a virgin here. Matthew makes it clear it's a virgin. And I think Isaiah does as well. But scholars argue back and forth. It's a young woman. It's Isaiah's son. 
Well, it's a virgin. She's bearing a child. That's something God has done miraculously. And his name is Emmanuel, God with us. None of Isaiah's sons were named that. What about Jesus? Well, he claimed to be the son of God. He is God. He is God with us. Even his Hebrew name comes really close. Yahweh saves. God with us. So we see it there. We see it also in Isaiah 9, uh, 1 through 7. Actually, in Isaiah 8. Isaiah 8. We'll go there real quick just to show you where it is. Here's just talking about God's judgment. And then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. And in verse 10, same chapter, devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Now, it's not Emmanuel in your translations probably, but it's the same in Hebrew. For Emmanuel, for God is with us. So three times in Isaiah, that's where we get the name. Go over to Isaiah 9, though. The famous Christmas passage here. They're looking forward, not just to a sacrifice, not just to a king, but God being with them. God ruling. This is end times. This is eschatology. It's not something we should shy away from. Isaiah 9. But there will be no more gloom. No more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's not just some cast off outer region. This is where somebody special is going to come from. From Galilee. Where the Gentiles are ruling by the days of Jesus. The people who walk in darkness up there, they're going to see a great light. This is quoted in the New Testament for Jesus. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Jesus, the light of the world. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. This is the light of the nation. God, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor at the battle of Midian. So all these nations that are trying to oppress God's people are going to be broken. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak, rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. Who's going to bring this about? A child will be born to us. Now it should be familiar. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Who gives a child the government? Even when young children inherited the throne, they had other people influencing them on what to do. But not this child. The government is going to be given to him. It will rest on his shoulders completely. No one else will have it. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father. Father of a great nation is the idea there. Not not confusing the Trinity, but just Father of a great nation. Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice, righteousness. Then on forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's coming. He's coming. He's going to start out as a little child. But he's going to be a great ruler. Now they're hoping for that by the time of Isaiah. Things are not looking good for them. Things are not looking good. Isaiah 11, 1, 1 through 10 speaks more of it. I'll let you read that. 
on your own, this righteous branch that will come from the stem of Jesse. Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Who's that voice? John the Baptist. John the Baptist will come. He's a messenger. He's going to clear the way. He's going to preach repentance. Make smooth the desert a highway for our God. God needs a highway. Go out and clear a highway because God's coming. Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Behold my servant. Now we begin to hear this language of a servant. It's not just the king, God with us, serving us. My servant, whom I uphold. This is the father speaking about the son, my chosen one, and whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice, nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. This should be one of your favorite verses in the Old Testament right here. A a bruised reed he will not break. A burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed. There's an old Puritan book called The Bruised Reed. It's all about that one verse that I just read. There's, There's someone coming and it's God with us and he loves us so much and he cares for his people so much that he's not gonna snuff out a little flame. You got a little flame of faith in your heart. He's not gonna do away with you. He's not, he's not going to, to do away with his people. He's not going to crush a bruised reed, a reed that's been smashed by others already. He's not going to come in and crush that bruised reed. There is a wonderful king coming, and it's actually God himself. Well, I could keep going through Isaiah, but I should probably pick up the pace. Isaiah 53, I have to mention it. You heard it, Isaiah 53. The suffering servant, the, the one who would come and he would be put to grief as a guilt offering. Now, Jews today will look at that, and if they really read it, they would have to believe. But you know what they do? Of course, God would have to regenerate their heart for them to believe, but they skip Isaiah 53 often in the synagogue readings. They just skip it. And they have these great evangelistic videos where people are going around in Israel and they're talking to the Jewish people in Hebrew, and they're just reading Isaiah 53, saying, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of this? People are saying, no, I've never heard of Isaiah 53. And people are getting saved just from the reading of Scripture in the streets. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, Jesus quotes this in his ministry when he starts, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. There it is. The Lord has anointed him. He is the Messiah to bring good news to the afflicted, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners. And he goes on talking about what this Messiah will do. And Jesus quotes this in Nazareth as he starts his ministry. Just a few more from the prophets here. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Write that down to read later. Daniel has a vision. Someone is coming up to the ancient of days to God. Who is it? It's the Son of Man. What about the Son of Man? He will receive a kingdom forever and ever, an everlasting dominion. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. He's so humble. It's your king. And he's mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. He has lowered himself. We know that's taking on flesh. He has humbled himself so much 
and he's riding in to the city on a little donkey. Micah 5.2. You know the significance of Micah 5.2 in the New Testament? Three wise men come. They're looking for this child that's been born. They've seen his star in the east. They've come all the way. They brought him the, the three gifts. Where is he? They don't know. They go to the capital. They start asking around. They ask the king. The king's not happy about it. He asks his scholars to look into it. They say, according to this verse, he'll be born in Bethlehem. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This is the king, but he is from eternity, which means he is God. God with us. And he'll be born in Bethlehem, specifically that city. The wise men go to give the gifts. End of the Old Testament. Last book, Malachi. Malachi 3.1. Really at the end of Malachi, there's also the coming of Elijah, signifying John the Baptist. But Malachi 3.1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. This is God speaking. I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. There's a messenger coming. And he's going to clear the path for the Messiah. There's one like Elijah coming. He's going to clear the path. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God is coming. Imagine you're part of that family of shepherds that hear the announcement from the angels. This would not have been a surprise. You would have waited. You would have known about the sacrifice of the king that God would be with us. You would have been so excited to worship this king. And I hope you can get some understanding of the New Testament as these people are just overjoyed when they learn of Christ. Yes, some hate him. The world's always going to hate him. But they were longing for that. They were looking for that. Not every single Jew, but the ones who were truly following God. So what does all this mean? What does all this mean? They, well, it means that the Savior, the Lord, the Son of God, came to be with us. He came to die for us. He came to rule over us. We could say that He came to live in us because each person who's saved is in Christ. You need to know your Bibles. You need to know two-thirds of your Bibles, the Old Testament. Look at how much is about Jesus. Sure, the New Testament has more and it's more clear, but the Old Testament has many references to this Messiah. He will dwell with us for eternity. That's how the Bible ends. Are you looking forward to this? Seeing this Christ, this Messiah face to face? We're going to dwell with him forever. You're not going to be bored on the eternal earth. You're not going to. You're going to see him forever. This is how Revelation 21.3 describes it. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he, so it's not talking about the actual temple or the tent, but the tabernacle, the one who took on flesh, the son of God. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Over the next few days, over the next few weeks, think about that. Not just a little cute baby that everybody came to look at. We have lots of those in the church. We have lots of cute babies that people could come and look at. This is the promised one. This is the coming one. This is the one that they all looked forward to and that we look back to see his birth, but we look forward to see him in the flesh. 
Just like Job. Job looked forward thousands of years to see Christ in the flesh upon the earth. Let's remember that. Let's talk about that this Christmas. Let's, let's bring that up in conversation. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the actual birth in the New Testament. But I hope you've got some sense of what God had to say in the Old Testament about Jesus the Messiah. Lord, I do pray today that we would love your King. We would love your Messiah. He died for us. He gave us his righteousness. He's coming to reign over the earth. And we'll be part of that. Lord, if we're in Christ here today, we will be part of that. So I pray that we would know our Bibles better, that we would love Scripture so much, we want to see Christ everywhere He's mentioned, that we would interpret Scripture properly to arrive at that point. And let us rejoice, Lord. Let us rejoice. We have hope. We have a Messiah. We have Christ. Help us to remember that every day we take in breath. Amen.